Hello, this is Phillips Cool. I'm the conference producer for the last three years for CHI's Advances in Prenatal Molecular Diagnostics. We've held three meetings now in Boston, and the third annual European version of this meeting will be coming up in early April. Today I'll be talking with Peter Collins and Pepper Denman from Premetha Health. Let's get started by asking the first question, how does the prenatal testing market differ between the U.S. and Europe? There are a number of market differences, but I think we should look to focus on maybe here, um, bearing in mind Premetha has developed a, a product, is to look at this from a product perspective. There are a number of very important factors that need to be taken into account for developing any IVD product for a particular market. Here, when we're discussing difference between Europe and the U.S., you obviously have to consider the intellectual property freedom to operate situation. You need to consider the regulatory requirements. You need to look at market access and reimbursement. And particularly for an NIPT cell-free DNA test for pregnant mums, is the pre-existing prenatal screening infrastructure that may or may not exist in the different countries of Europe and how that figures out in the U.S. IP front is obviously quite important. We don't need to go into big details, but there are very major differences between how patenting and intellectual property is dealt with in the U.S. and Europe. As we've seen in the U.S. in recent times, the Prometheus Mayo ruling from the Supreme Court has had a significant impact on the IP landscape and some of the claims in this space. On the regulatory side, if you're going to develop a product here as opposed to a laboratory-developed test, there's a pretty rigorous process for what in this case would be a, a Class three device. It's anywhere between three and five years' work to fully develop a device of this nature. The category would be a PMA, which is the entire system, all instruments, all reagents, all software, including the report, get looked at. Europe is similar. In this case, it's a filing run through a notified body. It's not self-declaration. And it probably sits somewhere between a 510K and a PMA, for those who are familiar with those terms. And at Premetha, we have CIVD on a full workflow from DNA extraction through to the result. On the market access front, then that links into any existing prenatal screening available. The previous gold standard for trying to provide pregnant women with information about their likelihood of risk of Carrying a fetus with some chromosomal abnormalities was based around biochemistry screening and nuchal translucency from the first ultrasound. In the U.S., there were some guidelines there, but there wasn't really the same kind of pre-existing prenatal screening available for, for the entire population that we see here in Europe. Screening tests are actually, in most countries in the European Union, covered by a national screening body, where it's considered to be a fundamental human right and a level playing field for population screening, not governed by the ability to pay, needs to be understood, debated, opined on, and then put in place by government. Those kind of restrictions don't exist in the US in quite the same way, and as you know, you can via the laboratory-developed test approach, you can gain reimbursement codes, you can then work with the insurance companies to ensure there is coverage via insurance companies for a test that can be demonstrated to offer clinical and hopefully economic value to the healthcare system. The process here in Europe is really quite different to that, so there's currently no governmental or single-payer reimbursement of NIPT. It's pretty much entirely a private pay market, and that's why we've seen an initial 
rapid uptake, but now a kind of plateauing in Europe whilst we wait for the existing prenatal screening approaches to incorporate an IPT alongside the existing infrastructure. So we haven't had quite the same continued exponential growth that we've seen in the United States. As a quick follow-up question, could you talk about some of the implications for end users between doing in-house sample testing versus sending those samples out to a service for prenatal testing? What do you see as some of the pros and cons of these two different approaches? The central testing lab model, well established in the U.S., is not established in the same way here in Europe. Europe's much more decentralized. And I guess one of the obvious advantages of a local implement product solution in your own lab is turnaround time. You've also got the advantages of being able to provide local language support. And within that particular hospital group or that particular hospital, you can coordinate other metrics related to the pregnant mum. You also have the benefit that if you did need a redraw, it's much easier to get someone in, take the blood and run the test again. There is, of course, a situation now where many governments, not only in Europe, but all around the world, are no longer quite so happy to ship samples across borders. But when you kind of couple that with the fact you can have regional centers that can be hubs to disseminate the same test, you do have some more flexibility. And I guess operating your own lab or labs in country does give you control of your own costs. On the negative side of that, obviously, any lab wanting to set up with this, there's a significant investment in capital equipment, which if you're sending out, you don't have to deal with. There's always the issues of lab space and, of course, staff to run the service. Another question is every healthcare dollar, wherever you are, or euro is competed for. And so there may be other competing projects that require infrastructure that the healthcare system might choose to invest some of that money in a different project and send out and take away some of the headaches that go around managing and providing the service. I think, obviously, on the service model itself, as we just described, no capital equipment, investment, space, etc., are important pros. But you do then have to deal with some fairly complicated logistics, especially if you're going to be dealing on a kind of transcontinental basis, the initial labs in Europe or either on the west coast of the US or in China, and that still remains a lot of samples in Europe. In fact, who knows, maybe even the majority currently tested are still sent in a plane transcontinentally. Inevitably, that does mean much longer turnaround times. And of course, there will be additional costs involved for the shipping and the infrastructure, etc., that make it over the long term, a less compelling option. I think wherever people can provide a local service the way Europe's structured, then that will have some benefits for the local community. Thank you, Peter. One critique of testing based on cell-free DNA is that all of the original versions of this type of test focused on a limited range of results, screening at the full chromosome level for the most common angioploidies, specifically a third copy of chromosome 21, which is responsible for Downs, chromosome 18, or chromosome 13. There has been interest in the potential for extending cell-free DNA testing to cover sub-chromosomal genetic aberrations, such as microdeletions. For that topic, I'd like to turn to Dr. Pepper Denman, who is Chief Medical Officer for Premetho. Welcome, Pepper. Philip from CHI, thank you so much for this opportunity. As Philip said, we're going to focus on the inclusion or exclusion of microdeletions in prenatal screening for this podcast. The other aspects of prenatal screening are very well covered elsewhere. 
Many people want to know, should they test for microdeletions? We at Promethe believe that this field is still early. The learned bodies have all respectfully opined and said that they do not feel that it is the right time to be doing broad microdeletion screenings. Let me give you a few examples of why we and the learned bodies feel this is the correct approach. The detection rate of microdeletions, and if we use 22Q11.2 as an example, is determined by many factors. But of course, microdeletions, as it implies, are very small elements. Size, fetal fraction, sequence account number, and regional genome variation all impact the ability to be accurate in your testing. It's hard to know exactly what the right number is, but it is probably optimistic to believe we would get even up to 80% detection rate for the average microdeletion. It's also felt from Yaron's work that the false positive rate is going to be about 0.75%. And since the prevalence is only 1 in 4,000, if we run those numbers, in 100,000 pregnancies, we'll detect 80% of 25, which is 20, and we'll also end up with 750 false positives. In effect, sending 750 women, should all the rest of their testing be normal, for an amnio, which didn't need one. When we think about it, we may end up negating many of the benefits of NIPT screening for 13, 18, and 21 by searching for conditions with low incidence, difficult to detect, and driving our false positives up. The other issue is in some of these microdeletions, we're not actually sure what the genetic finding means for the phenotype. Therefore, based on the complexity of the microdeletion screening and how to help mothers understand that, we believe that at the moment, we should not be generally testing for microdeletions. Prometha will continue to follow this area of prenatal screening very closely, working with our key opinion leaders and learned societies, and support the obstetrical and prenatal community as we make pregnancy and childbirth safer.